Welcome to Film Trace. It's the second season of Film Trace. This is the podcast where we trace the life of a movie from conception to production, all the way to release and reception. Uh, we have a special guest today, Molly, who actually did uh, an after show for us as a gift on Tax Collector, uh, which we loved so much. Uh, we decided her to uh, invite her to the season two premiere of Film Trace. Uh, so Molly, welcome. She will uh, give her opinion on the film and sort of uh, kind of let us know what she thinks about all of our insights and notes on this week's film, which is what, Chris? Yeah, uh, we are going to start out with a new film. We did our season finale on Nightcrawler, which was newly available on Netflix uh, last month. Uh, speaking of Netflix, they have a new original film that just came out uh, less than a week ago. It is called The Devil All the Time, which... Uh, Sounds much more like a dance party than the movie turns out to be. Uh, directed by Antonio Campos and uh, produced by Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, starring Tom Holland, Bill Skarsgård, and so many more. We are going to get into it. Uh, this movie is uh, its both a wild one and a trudge. So, yeah. Uh, let, let's, let's start. D- Dan, why did you pick this film for our season premiere? Okay, so... Yeah, I picked this film because obviously we want to do a new one to start out. I wanted to pick something that I thought was going to be kind of in the zeitgeist, so to speak. And it is, right? (laughs) It is. It was number one and two on Netflix on uh, Thursday and Friday when it came out. Uh, But I also, I think for me personally, it was the style of the film, sort of Southern Gothic, I thought was very interesting. But more than anything was that cast, right? The cast is insane. Um, It's one of the most stacked casts I've ever seen uh, in a movie in a long time, especially for a Netflix film. So I think for me, I was just really fascinated about how they're going to bring all these sort of super talented people together and what would be the end result. Would they sort of like act over each other, so to speak, or would this thing actually work? Um, and The Devil All Time, you know, it's based on a novel. Uh, the plot is based on a 20, uh, 2011 uh, bestselling novel of the same name by Donald Ray Pollock. Uh, the film is set in post-World War II Ohio and follows a young man devoted to protecting his loved ones in a town full of corruption and sinister characters. That's the Netflix uh, sort of log line on the film. And so, I don't know, I, I think just it, it it pulled me in. I'm a big fan of the Southern Gothic stuff, so I wanted to see uh, how how messed up or beautiful this film was going to be because I knew it was going to be uh, both messy and beautiful at the same time, which I think that it is. Now, um, are you are ahead. you into the Southern Gothic thing? Because I know you you got your master's in English and you were yep. obsessed with Faulkner for a, a great period of your life. Is that is that? Yeah, fair? I would say Faulkner, but I think more Flannery O'Connor. Flannery um, O'Connor. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's sort of the big draw here, I think, for me. And even from the trailer, you could kind of tell that it had that vibe to it. Uh, and it's interesting too, to think about like who's producing this, like Jake Gyllenhaal, Reva uh, Marker, they have a new production company called, or newish, I should say, Nine Stories Productions based out of New York, uh, just started in, uh, in 2015. So um, it's kind of a new uh, a new production arm. So it, it's kind of just an interesting film altogether. Uh, you know the director a little bit, right, Chris? Like what have you seen of his work? Yeah, I've only seen his, um other uh, recent film, Christine, from 2016, uh, starring Rebecca Hall. It's a biopic about the journalist who uh, killed herself live on air in a local news station in Florida. Uh, and it's exactly what you'd imagine it to be. It's a, a very kind of morose, slow build to the act, which concludes the film. It 
that's uh, not really something I would imagine anybody needs to see. And uh, I'm not sure what compelled to watch it other than my clinical depression. But it's uh, (laughs) quite the uh, it seems to be very part and parcel with what uh, Campos has become known for. He carved himself out with uh, IFC Films back in 2008 after school, made kind of a splash uh, as his debut at Sundance that year. And then he followed up with Simon Killer in 2012, which I've heard good things about, um, but uh, has never really struck my interest to go seek out because it's a movie about uh, Brady Corbett, who plays uh, an American living in Paris, who starts uh, pimping out his girlfriend and then killing and uh, manipulating the men that uh, um, are her clients. And it, it he just has this really perverse and violent through line to his work that is uh, culminated in really kind of just, I don't know, stomach pains inducing fashion with this he's not he doesn't movie. seem like the most <laughs> the uh, the kind of yeah, yeah balanced or settled guy he's got some <laughs> stuff going on at the surface right amal have you seen any of his movies before no i feel the need to clarify something <laughs> because from What's your that? intro it sounds like i'm a random person that made you an after show podcast <laughs> oh yeah do clarify Clear i just feel the need to clarify that i've known you both for 20 years in case someone random actually is listening to this podcast <laughs> <laughs> that it was, was uh it was mm-hmm. yes a satirical uh gesture for all of our entertainment but and it was just, wonderful. We really enjoyed it. it just try, chiming in with that, I'm not, I don't know what I... Did you watch the trailer of this movie, Molly? I didn't watch the trailer, no. I just went... You went into this cold? I just went in real cold, but, you know, also real hot for a few of the actors in the movie, so, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the cast is so stacked to the point where you just sort of... Anybody who's interested in film and stuff is going to want to see this, I think. Right. Like, it's just right. And it's like all the hot actors, too, not just like attractive wise, but like, you know, I'm thinking like Eliza Scanlon, who was huge in what was the name of that show on HBO? OK, Sharp Objects. Stop pretending like you don't know. I couldn't remember. Uh, Haley Bennett, who I love. She was in Swallow. You guys see Swallow this year at all? Nope. A little horror film. Um, Just fantastic. So super hot cast. Um, her from what music and lyrics so music and thank you from music and lyrics yes exactly <laughs> is that that's um, the hugh grant movie yeah hugh grant and uh, drew barrymore it's one of my favorite movies um wow but this one you know obviously has the cast but also has like these people behind the scenes emma potter uh did costume design from uh perry mason um and th- is this true the same guys that did the rental the music danny benson yep. and Saunders. Jurens, I think his name is. Yeah, these um, guys are just like blowing up on the the soundtrack circuit, and uh, they scored all the episodes of Fear the Walking Dead and Ozark, and I'd say uh, was probably one of the only things I enjoyed about this movie. Oh, um, okay, but we'll, we'll get more into that when we talk about the critics and what they thought of it. Um, yeah, they so so here's my other question for you guys: uh, the the kind of the big news um with the success and netflix deal for campos is that he is now and now that it seems like this is quote unquote a success obviously we don't have a lot of the barometers of uh the other movies we typically cover on the podcast when we talk about a netflix original there's no box office or anything um but it it has been 
you know, quite the talk, especially with, I mean, I feel like it's strange we've gotten so far into the episode and we haven't mentioned Robert Pattinson is probably the biggest draw <laughs> yeah. for this movie. Uh, yeah. And we will get more into that, of course. But um, it does seem like Campos's star is rising even more. He has just been tapped. It was announced a few days ago to direct um, the first Omen, which is the full title of the film, which is a prequel to the 1976 horror classic. Um, what has what is it about this guy's oeuvre? I don't know. There, there's what, something about him. Like, why how did is he, he blowing people? up? How do you get all these people? Right. Like I think he said he got Rob first. Um, then he got Tom and then he think he got Eliza third. No, no, Mia third. And so how did he get all these people on board with this? And not only the actors, like all the people behind the scenes. Um, I don't know if it was just him or it's the source material. I mean, the, the novels, you know, very highly regarded. Um, so I'm wondering if people knew the book before they knew him. I'm not really sure. Um, but he definitely, I think all the stars were aligned for this to be a fantastic movie. Um, and I don't know if the results bear that out. Hard disagree. How so? How do you so? I mean, I just think the, I just think phrasing it, these stars aligned for this to be a fantastic movie is just an overstatement. I don't, I don't think necessarily the cast. I also would venture that I feel like a lot of this cast, this was like an insider, like friend casting moment. Cause like Rob Patterson and like Mia Wachowski, like they did at least one movie together before. And like, I mean, that may not have played a part into it, but I remember reading something where it was like Chris Evans was originally cast in Sebastian Stan role and he recommended him to take over. And so that's how Sebastian Stan got involved. Um, so I like part of what strikes me is like that there was a little bit of maybe that as well. There was like a couple people on board and yes, the source material. And then it was like, you know, some of the other, there was like a couple of those other younger people that might've like got recommended, you know, by somebody who was already cast kind of situation. Um, I mean, it's interesting as you think that Tom Holland would have gotten involved because of Jake Gyllenhaal and them working on Spider-Man far from home together. But, uh, they actually, found out on the set of Spider-Man Far From Home that they were going to be involved in the same movie next. Like they talked on the set and Tom's like, hey, Jake, what uh, what do you think about this movie as a Southern Gothic, blah, blah, blah. And Jake's <laughs> like, wait, I think I'm producing that movie. So it's it's also just kind of like incestuous Hollywood happenstance, I think. And I I really it's it's bizarre because on the one hand, yeah, you would look at that cast, especially considering all of the things that have happened, sharp objects and uh, it and all that with Bill Skarsgård. And on the one hand, that's possible. But on the other hand, it does feel like just kind of a mess. Like you've got this huge cast and you got this guy that somehow like finagled his way into Netflix, even though um, Christine had some plaudits, but really no awards and zero box office. It just feels like one of those things because he had that hit with nine stories um, Martha, Mar- what did that, whatever that movie's called, Martha May Marcine, whatever. Mar- yeah, Martha Marcy May Marlene. <laughs> Thank you. But like you, like he, like that was his foothold, right? And so then yeah. that brings, you know, it's just a domino effect. I feel, but yeah, I, I don't know if it's necessarily like this grand plan because the movie, to say the least, is a bit messy. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a bit messy. Well, let's talk about how this thing actually came to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. So essentially the story that I heard on one interview is that 
uh, Antonio got the book from Randy Poster, who's another one of the producers, I think. And apparently he's a music supervisor bigger than that. He got the book, says, you'll love this. Uh, he did love it. Um, he knew that, you know, he wanted to get his brother involved, Paulo Campos, uh, who was a writer in general, but hadn't written a screenplay before. He gave him the book. They all lo- they both everybody loved the book. Uh, and they said, let's kind of do this movie together. Um, I always found that that's interesting just right there. It's like, how does that happen? Yeah. Like how does the guy who really started this whole process was Randy poster. Um, and so he got the other people involved, but like, you know, I, I want to film some books. Like how does that, he, you know, he must've had enough cachet to basically go into his studio like Netflix and say, Hey, I want to do this book adaptation. Um, he must've got the thumbs up from the author Pollock, um, to make it happen. Uh, but uh, that whole part of it sort of, the 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 line or journey from desire and having uh, a piece of art that you want to adapt to actually making it happen we don't really know that works right that's right. when you need to bring on hendrix to sort of figure that out one of our friends who works in the the movie industry um so a pretty typical sort of start to a movie someone loves a book it's really good let's try and do it uh they probably got the actors involved after you know optioning the script and stuff like that um it sounds like uh campos was sort of drawn into you know, the themes of violence uh, and sort of very specifically religious iconography and how people use religion to, um, you know, try and help themselves and help themselves to the world and how it often fails them and how other people use religion uh, as deceptive and manipulative people to hurt others and control other people. Uh, So I think the intention here of sort of diving into this Southern Gothic tale that kind of has a noir edge to it um, I think there's a lot of really good intention here. Would you guys agree with that? No. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, okay, bro. Expand. Expand. <laughs> I mean, um, go ahead, yeah, Chris. You first, Mom. So, oh, please. Uh, I mean, this is where I was like, I mean, this is part of like a larger rant that maybe part of it's for when you talk about the actual movie, but I that's why I push back on the stars aligned for this to be a great thing. Cause I would argue the original problem is that I haven't read the book, but after watching that movie, because you and the origin story, you could tell it was like, everyone's really enamored with the book. Right. And that sort of, I feel like there was something with the director I read too, where he was talking about how he's like only in first choice for the narrator was the author. And like, he had to get him and like, whatever. And so obviously it's very like the textual inspiration for this. It's the book itself. It's like, how can we make this book like literally into a movie? And I would argue that's like the first problem. Cause again, I have not read the book, but I can just tell this is a freaking book that shouldn't have been made into a movie in the sense of like what, what I imagine the author may have done successfully in the book does not translate onto the screen. And like for the love, I mean, this is a personal pet peeve. I almost always hate narration in movies. Um, like I don't think it works except for maybe like if a kid's movie or sort of like a fairy tale or this sort of like heightened magical realism thing, like narration in movies almost always makes me feel like you're super lazy. Like you didn't have a strong vision for how to translate a book into a different form. And you're just sort of like relying on the book structure. Cause I could tell from the narration, I'm like, Oh, I could imagine what this book is like and how some of these yeah. storylines yeah, totally. were in the book and how much it fails in the movie. Yeah, that's a good point. Chris, what do you think? What is the intention and conception here? Do you think that like this is starting out on the right foot or is it sort of uh, a mistake from the start? 
Yeah, I I I totally agree with Molly. And you know, the first thought I had as soon as I realized, and I watched the trailer, but I guess I really wasn't paying attention. Um, but like in minute ten or fifteen, I was I just felt so exhausted already. Um, by specifically the fact that obviously this was going to be a multi-generational story, which rarely works with movies. And also like knowing in advance, like, uh, you know, minute you press play, you see, you know, on the screen minus two hours and 18 minutes. And it just like it, it, it like preempts your ability to enjoy the movie because it, you know, it's going to be a slog once you know those two factors and so like the easy answer out i think would be like uh why wouldn't they just like turn this into a mini series but uh, also still i think that's like yeah. you you have to have the right tone in order for that to work because like you're i mean one of the quotes you had in our notes for today's episode was about you know how how perhaps the the novel um got so many uh so much acclaim when it came out because it you know has elements of Cormac McCarthy and it just yeah. felt like so much. It's just like, this is just like a, a much sicker Cohen attempt at, you know, copying the Cohen brothers. And it just did not feel like the, a place where I would want to hang out for multiple episodes either. So it's just like, I don't know. I yeah. mean, I don't know how many pages the book is, but it can't be. a. It's It's gotta be in close to half a thousand. And it just, it <laughs> does not feel like something that, really like i would get much out of other than like yep yep humanity was a problem from the start <laughs> like I, I i just uh, i i wish no, they i totally get what you guys are saying like i think the the two things that stick out the narration like yeah. even in one of the reviews from the variety they're basically what i forget what they say you could teach this movie in film class as a textbook case of telling rather than showing in, <laughs> yeah. in a way that lulls and numbs right what do you think yeah the moment you open up with a near a narrator you're really sort of stamping the film in a certain way uh, and I think in a lot of ways with this movie, it doesn't necessarily it kind of in narration. What does it do? It sort of glues together a disparate narrative that wouldn't work without the narration. Right. And, and it's specifically that it's specifically the third person narration. Right. Yeah. And you have to like have a really like good sense of like comedy. And if you're going to like do it nowadays, I feel like even going back to like uh, Campos talked in an interview about the inspiration from Barry Lyndon which like is a hilarious movie, but is also like super deadpan. And so the narration works in its favor or like we're talking about the most obvious kind of reference of modern movies is Brian Cox's character in adaptation, right? Where he specifically yeah. talks about narration as a crutch and it's, you know, meta and funny because there's actually narration in the movie. Um, or if you're doing it in a first person sense, like a Terrence Malick movie, it feels, you know, more, you know, celestial and pretentious for like it purposely. So, so that it ends yeah. up being like artistic and it's a certain style and tone. But like, I think, I think that's one of campus's key problems is like he is aping so many people that he just doesn't really find his voice as a filmmaker himself. Yeah. And, and so the narration was clearly like a very bold stylistic choice in terms of like the other sort of production aspects to this film the stuff that pops out to me, the look and feel of it is so specific. Um, you know, shooting it on film instead of digital, which you had to fight for with Netflix. The budget here what had to be south of 20 million. It's part of Netflix's uh, indie division. Um, and so it probably was not the easiest shoot in the world. Um, do we think that he captured a specific time period or, or created this narrative world that was maybe not enticing, but maybe rich? 
you think it captures that Southern Gothic vibe? I think it does on some levels, but I think it also kind of misses some of the points of the Southern Gothic sort of style. I don't know what do you guys think about that in terms of like the production and how it looked and the, the production design and all that. Oh, I mean, yeah, there's like in two different interviews, he like contradicts himself. Like one time he was saying Southern Gothic, but then in another interview I read with him, he was saying like something different's really happening on screen here. We're like doing like a Midwestern Gothic. Cause you know, like Ohio yeah. <laughs> isn't really the South. And I was like, what are you talking about, dude? Like, yeah. First of and all, this is a New York guy, right? Yeah. Like, and again, like that, again, that he just, whatever. So, I mean, so no, I don't think he really, <laughs> besides that kind of, that kind of nonsense comment, like he doesn't really <laughs> understand what yeah. the Southern Gothic vibe is. I mean, this is not a knock against the actors. I just found it like super ironic that like, because yeah. I counted seven out of the 10 leads <laughs> yeah. aren't even American, which I just yeah. like found really, I was like, this is like really heavy on like mostly British and also Australian actors. Like yeah. almost nobody was American. I mean, like obviously the fact that like apparently no non-white people existed in this, in this story, no one encountered anyone for generations. Um, yeah. You know, like, like sure. Like he, I don't know, man. Like it, I don't think he captured it at, like at all. Or even if he was trying to do something like Midwestern, I don't know what he was trying to do, but yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think that particular piece was super successful because I feel like he just didn't have a grasp on any of that kind of stuff. I mean, again, it like came across as, I mean, it's like the same as if like I was watching it and I was like, please end this for me. Like in the sense of like, he just, it's this, it was like the same stuff. You're like this again, it's a bunch of white people. It's dudes with like all the dudes getting the screen time. Literally yeah. all the female characters are just plot devices to have violence visited upon them and be victims. Like literally nobody, like yeah. none of the women, they're all victims of, so it's like cool. Like men are violent, generational violence of men women as victims and blah, 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 blah. Like it was just, yeah. it's sort of like the same repetitive thing that I've just seen. It's just, again, it's the exhaustion of like the same kind of things. And we all know exactly why we're just getting spoon fed the exact same kind of stuff over and over again. Um, anyway, so no, the short answer is no, I don't think he, <laughs> he did the what Southern Gothic thing very successful at all. I think, I mean, yeah, you hit the nail on the head with like the actors, especially, and not that they're all, I think they're all solid actors. It's just that like the ones that stood out to me, you know, like, um, uh, Riley Keough, you know, is American. Uh, and she kind of, I felt like embodied that Southern Gothic, not even almost like noirish Southern noir vibe better than most people on screen. How do we think Robert Pattinson did with his, his made up accent. So uh, Rob basically refused to get a dialect coach uh, <laughs> and kind of came up with his own accent. Uh, I thought it was really a fascinating accent. I don't know how accurate or whether it really in, uh, embodied that Southern preacher vibe. I don't know. What do you guys think about that aspect of it? Um, I was ho I was I think I feel like I hyped myself up too much for it. Uh, Cause like I saw like probably the craziest thing in like a two minute Twitter clip 
And I was just like, oh, yeah, I'm ready. Let's watch this. And then that was yeah. just, and for the most part, like that was probably you know, like that one scene, the sermonizing on the chicken livers was probably the most entertaining part. But then like as soon as we realize that, you know, he's a rapist, it, it, it just really sucks all the fun out of it to be honest <laughs> so yeah i mean there's there's not much fun going on in this movie no. molly what do you think about robert pattinson in this do you feel like he stood out i did ask the southern i asked the southern delegation well in this case it was the louisiana delegation um what they thought of his accent and they said it was they're like i don't know where that's from but i but that doesn't sound like you know whatever um so i think it was a bit uh it was you know a sort of magical <laughs> accent made up in Robert Patterson and it was very wandering scene to scene very inconsistent yes. um but yeah I mean can I just ask like a real quick question yeah go for it that when you brought up Riley Keough and I agree that she was one of the like few sort of people that I felt like I was like yes I see you in this story or yeah. this environment but am I are we supposed to believe uh-huh. that they were serial killers for like 18 years. <laughs> yeah. The timeline doesn't. Okay. Really I just was like, cause I thought about that. I was like, so they met the same time that the Tom Holland's parents met. They like literally Correct. met the same day. Yeah. And then they're still murdering people. Which <laughs> Tom Holland's like 18. The is, they're clearly <laughs> bad at it. Yes. Yeah, they're not they, good. How were they murdering <laughs> they for 18 years? That's really long. And there's no way that Riley Keough looked like she aged 18 I, years. Uh, yeah, the, the time part of it, I think, and also like how they had to shoot it. I don't think a lot of these actors were ever with each other, except that they had scenes together. Yep. Like obviously Tom and Rob had to be together for that one scene, but the rest of the cast was probably shot over that 45 days of period there. Like it's all over the place. Um, And I think that like, I don't know. I don't know if that led to the that was a big issue in terms of st- stitching the film together. Um, I think the problem probably was at the screenplay level, um, not really being able to. I mean, do, is there kind of like wandering a bit more towards release? Maybe. Do you think there's a protagonist in this movie? Ugh. Is there? I mean, I guess it's supposed <laughs> to be Tom Holland because he's sort of like so. a yeah. somewhat bookend. He definitely gets the most screen time, right? I think out of like all the bajillion people in this movie, I feel like at the end, if you like Tom Holland gets the most screen time. Especially if you add in his nine-year-old counterpart or whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, also, like, um, what I, a waste. I, I, what a waste of Mia Vashkowski and, like, Haley Bennett. Like, I was literally like, oh, that's it? Haley Bennett especially, yeah. No, both. Mia Vashkowski was in less scenes than Haley Bennett, I think. Like, had less dialogue. And also, can I just, again, point out, because I feel like that's my job here, is that, like, mm-hmm. none of the women talk to each other in the entire film. Yep. And, like, no nobody thanks. except for Riley Keough had a, like no female had a scene by themselves or was like kind of from their perspective besides Riley Q and she's silent. She's just like looking at photographs. Yeah. Yeah. Or the, that but. I, I was going to say earlier when we brought up Riley Keough that like that one scene where she's like trying to decide whether or not to leave Jason Clark and like that, but like that was the, that was one of the few scenes in the movie where I was like, Oh, I want to see where this goes. And then it just reverts back to the business as usual. And it's just yeah. so disappointing. But I f- it almost feels like afterthoughts. Like they were like, I swear some of the time with these things, because this movie feels so, again, disjointed and like not, again, not doesn't have like a strong directorial or like 
story vision behind it. And like, so sometimes like those scenes, I swear to God, it was like, somebody was like, Oh, we should probably get some lady scenes. And then he was like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they like quickly shoot three scenes with Riley Keough, like get on that phone, sit in the car, look at some pics. Like, (laughs) (laughs) um, so let's figure out, let's figure out how the, the reception was here on this. Like critically, it's okay. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes score all critics is 65%, 63 score. Uh, top critics is essentially the same, 67. A little bit higher, the actual score, 70 out of 100. Metacritic's pretty low at 54. Uh, it dropped a couple of points in, in the last few days. Uh, the uh, Rotten Tomato audience score, again, this isn't verified, right? Um, 86%. It's all Netflix uh, interns. It's got to be Netflix interns. Or like Tom or Tom and, Ro- and Rob fan fans. I don't know. Yeah, like, I feel like there's some people with, there's a couple of people in this movie with some strong fan base. <laughs> yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, definitely. Letterboxd I mean, score of a 70, which is okay. That's kind of in between decent and good. Uh, IMDb 73, no cinema score because there's not a, it was released in theaters about a week before, but there's oh, no was. box office numbers. Yeah. I think probably New York and Los Angeles, maybe just for awards contention. Mm-hmm. Although I guess you don't need that this year. Yeah, so don't I don't know why anymore. they would do that. Uh, Metacritic audience score. I just toss this in there for fun. 79 out of 100. <laughs> um, what do we make of these scores? I think the critics are kind of muted on it. They don't necessarily hate it. Um, do we trust these audience scores? I mean, we have a couple of data points. If Letterboxd is at 70, that's a pretty good sign. That's probably not going to get brigaded by fans. Um Audience score is hard to tell uh, on Rotten Tomatoes. Do you do? Is there a divide between critics and the audiences? I mean, not according to these numbers. <laughs> well, I mean, the critics are lower at sixty-five and sixty-seven. It already, uh, the Rotten Tomato audience score is at eighty-six. I mean, that's a lot. That's a pretty significant difference. I don't know. I I'm think wondering. I think that's fans. I uh, that's my especially with Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, maybe some of that stuff is like people are hot for Rob and people are hot for Tom. I, you guys don't understand this. Um, so as a high school teacher, I promise. I mean like, yeah, like if you (laughs) haven't seen the clip of Tom Holland dancing to Rihanna's umbrella on lip sync battle from years ago, it is by far (laughs) the most iconic thing he'll ever do. Um, but like, I'm sure that that is part of it here. I also just think, I mean, it's like, again, you watch this, these types of movies and again, like where I'm just like, I'm exhausted by it. Cause I'm like, I'm sick of these same, like, you know, story beats. And it's cause these kind of movies, it's like, Oh, Southern poor people who are like <laughs> downtrodden trudging and like too religious and it backfires on the, it's just like all the same really like kind of condescending stuff that again, sometimes again, where I could imagine if it's a book and you're sort of writing and like adding this texture to these characters and can kind of work in a different format but like in movies like this it just but but I feel like people I have to recognize most people don't respond the same way I'm going to they're going to see they're going to see it like through their lens which is like wow this feels prestigious right this feels gritty or this feels like an important story or something because it's fancy people playing poor people with like sepia tone cinematography right yeah it's kind of like misery porn on some level, right? Yeah. Um, and I, and I think I don't know. I don't know. I I was reading through the YouTube uh, like reviews and stuff. Uh, or like, like the comments. Like you do what? 
Yeah, absolutely. Can we just yeah, like, absolutely. I just wanted to like, just for the audience, for Chris and I just to like mm, sit with that. Okay, go ahead. No, but I think that like there, I, I think that that Rotten Tomato score is a lot more accurate than you guys think that it is. I think that there's a group of people um, who are seeing this movie and enjoying it. Uh, like you go through the comments and people are like, that's the best acting I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> or, you know, it's long, but you got to stick with it and it's amazing. And so there, I think there is a segment because remember, this is, you know, with the Netflix release, this is not hitting the art house crowd. This is hitting like, you know, middle the America massive, sitting right. like the average person. It's for people that are looking for those markers of things that they like. Like, what is it like really kind of grotesque, abrupt violence a la Tarantino, a la like anybody who does that. Like, that's what is what this has. Do I want to see Tom Holland like beat the shit out of some guy with the tire iron? Sure. Sign me up. Like, then come you come to the right place. You know, do I want to see like grotesque? Like, I don't know, just like ridiculous stuff. So yeah, I mean, I think it has, that's what I was saying. It like has those same beats that we see that's like meant to sort of that combination of people feeling like, oh, this isn't just titillating with like the violence or like whatever. It's also like, it's also like a good film because everyone's acting because they're like, I swear to God, it's like, we're all ingrained to no, be like, are, you're yeah. playing poor people with an accent. Like this is where people get all their Oscars from, right? This is like what people even like actors buy into it right they get excited about playing these types of stories and these no one gets excited about actually living these lives and being poor but like or caring about those kind of people but they love you know what i mean to sort of feel like it's an important story to watch um so i think it's just like this type of like genre and and especially especially when religion is involved like i i i feel like yes the poverty aspect to it was really just just really insensitive in numerous levels but then like adding the religious aspect was just just felt like just it just felt like a very cruel atheist just like sitting on the sidelines and like laughing uh at people that you know have some kind of vested interest or true belief either or or often both in organized religion especially of like the small town uh southern christian variety and that's just like it just it, it, it that coupled with the extreme violence, which, yeah, definitely was uh, um, redolent of Tarantino. And you had like you had all this like dated uh, aspects to it, too, that kind of really made it feel like, oh, if I saw this movie as a 13 year old in the mid 90s, that it would have really like shocked me and made me think that yeah, it w- had something totally. big to say. And, totally and totally and then add in like the the non-linear storytelling and like the hyperlink cinema with the ensemble cast and it's just like it just feels like bait oh right gross like dude remember when we thought like magnolia was a deep movie <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's like that kind of stuff like i'm yeah. sure like 20 year olds with all three of us if we were like 20 reviewing this we'd be like whoa you guys um Changed like my life like vanilla sky well, one of the quotes from one of the reviews you put in the notes uh was like uh because i also feel like this too is like the it's it's about religion but again it's this very sort of like you know condescending really like reductive version of like way people see religion like there's just it's like a cautionary tragedy about putting your faith in the wrong men who cloak themselves in god when in fact the devil is inside them and it's just like again where it was at the core it's like these characters were mostly just like 
except for again, guess that's why he was the protagonist, Tom Holland, who sort of like rose above it, right? Because he wasn't into religion. He saw through it. He was sort of existed outside of that by his own moral code at the end, right? But like everybody else was just like evil men that were religious in some way and like women who were too dumb to see through them, right? Like that's a very simplified version, but to give me an example of any storyline that doesn't fall into that in this movie, they all do. Um, how would you guys think that this movie would stack up against something maybe in a similar sort of vein, like a winter's bone, which I love is one of my favorite movies from when was that like 2010 or maybe earlier. Um, do you think, do you think it, obviously do you guys like that movie? Do you think it stacks up as a piece of sort of noir sort of Appalachia or Southern Gothic noir? Yeah, I mean, I also love that movie. I think that, uh, I mean, I was trying to think and look up examples of Southern Gothic. And once again, that's that once seems like a misnomer because we're talking about Ohio for like 90% of this movie. And then Winter's Bone. Yeah, it's more Appalachia than Southern. Yeah, the Ozarks. And so like it's it it feels like you're lumping so much together. But um, I mean, he went with it in the interviews and that's how it's being talked about largely uh, in the media. So. I mean, there's also lots of other good examples of this. Like, uh, I really like the movie Mud with McConaughey and Eve's Bayou yeah, of uh, from the 90s and Angel Heart from the 80s. And so, like, there's there's tons of ways to do this kind of style, either from, like, a uh, kind of progressive feminist uh, lens like Winter's Bone does, but also in, like, more of the... Tra- or, like, Eve's Bayou does, but also, like, in that traditional sense. If you're going to, like, analyze, like masculinity and religion like i think that angel heart did it way better i think that mud did it way better where it's it's as simple as like narrowing your scope and really giving depth to the characters and otherwise you're going to wind up with what molly said where you just have the same story beats and the same dynamics that just feel both dated and offensive so i think you know in terms of summing this all up and what this film was all about um, if you had to give it a score out of one out of a hundred, what would you guys give it? I would give it, I'll go first. I would give it a 73. I think there is some <sighs> stuff here that is valuable. Um, I think the acting's fantastic. Um, I don't think the writing's all that great. I don't think the overall story is all that good. I think that's why I wouldn't score it higher, but I think a lot of the elements that go into it are, are really well done. And there's a lot of craftsmanship here. Um, that should be highlighted and celebrated. But yeah, I think the overall film is a li- very problematic. What do you, what would you guys think? Okay. Uh, I, 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 I mean, I, I rank all the movies I see each year and um, it's, it, it was just uh, one spot above uh, the Netflix original uh, Nassim Pedrad, Drek Desperados. <laughs> ah, Desperados. I've seen that. And one, one spot below the Disney Plus original film about a talking ape named the one and only Ivan. So it's oh, it, it's brutal. It's brutal. I, I I really I really hated this movie. I would give it probably twenty twenty four. Yeah, I the Joker. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was gonna go like you know again effort for people who showed up and tried to do their job well. Like, you know, I think that there's, right? Like, that's, I, I try to recognize where that's due. And I think some of the actors, you know, Jason Clark, Bradley Kia, like, you know, a, a decent amount of the actors, like, showed up and, like, like, you feel like you're like, yeah, you tried to do your job. Um, 
and gave some interesting moments like sometimes but but again it was like for what like you just feel like everything even anybody did that was interesting was for it was like a waste um because it was in service of nothing so I like I don't know I'd give it like a mid-30s or something um I just again there's nothing what it was thought it was doing hit and again I just I acknowledge my bias that I automatically have a visceral reaction to like narration in those movies (laughs) so but it no, was I the totally. author himself, Molly. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's author. But again, that makes um, it, but don't you understand that makes me even more mad because it's just like, <laughs> it's like the lazy, like he's, he's thinking it's like, so like this great thing. And you're like, you realize it's just like some, like, I just want him to show up and do the work for me again. Like, right. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So that's episode one of season two, Molly. Thank you for joining us. Yes. Uh, it thank was you. A, a blast. Um, Chris, what do we have uh, for episode two of season two? Yeah, so uh, Dan's going to pick the new movies this season. I'm going to pick the old movies, and we're going to see who can uh, make give each other the worst time. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm excited about this. I haven't seen this movie since uh, probably TBS uh, in the 90s, um, and I don't remember it very well, so I'm looking forward to revisiting it. Uh, new on Hulu this month is the 1990 uh, Michael Cimino film Desperate Hours, which stars Mickey Rourke as a prison escapee uh, who goes on the run with his brother, uh, played by Elias Cotius, and uh, they he falls in love with his defense lawyer. Uh, it's 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 a neo noir uh, romance. It's just a, a complete uh, crazy mess, and I I I have fond memories of it. It's also a remake of the '55 William Wyler uh, noir, which I haven't seen. I'm going to try to check out before our episode next week. So looking forward to it. 